0: is for us. Uh, But we are in 2 Corinthians chapter 11, beginning in verse 1. Hear the word of the Lord. I wish you would bear with me, Paul says, in a little foolishness, to bear with me, for I, I feel a divine jealousy for you since I betrothed you to one husband, to present you as a pure virgin to Christ. But I'm afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his cunning, your thoughts will be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. For someone comes and proclaims another Jesus than the one we proclaimed, or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received, or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted, you put up with it readily enough. Indeed, I consider that I am not in the least inferior to these super apostles. Even if I am unskilled in speaking, I am not so in knowledge. Indeed, in every way we have made this plain to you in all things? Or did I commit a sin in humbling myself so that you might be exalted because I preached God's gospel to you free of charge? I robbed other churches by accepting support from them in order to serve you. And when I was with you and was in need, I did not burden anyone, for the brothers who came from Macedonia supplied my need, so I refrained and will refrain from burdening you in any way. As the truth of Christ is in me, this boasting of mine will not be silenced in the regions of Achaia. And why? Because I do not love you. God knows I do. What I'm doing, I will continue to do in order to undermine the claim of those who would like to claim that in their boasted mission, they work on the same terms as we do. For such men are false apostles, deceitful workmen, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. And no wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. So it is no surprise if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness. Their end will correspond to their deeds. Let's pray together. Father, as we look closely at another portion of of your word, uh, this living word of God, we pray, Father, that we would... Treat it with reverence and, and respect, and would receive it with the intention with which it was given to us, Lord, that we would receive it by faith and knowing that it is from God. We pray, Father, that the, the, the spirit and the mood in which it was given also would be received by us, that we would see how eager Paul is to communicate well uh, with God's church. We pray, Father, that we would understand uh, his anxiety. And His concern for the Church of Christ in Corinth and that we would sense that same concern Of all God's leaders of 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 the churches around the world have the same concern for the body of Christ Lord help us to To grow from this knowledge uh, Help us to apply it to our particular location as well. We we ask in Christ's name. Amen There are two hymns in our hymn book that originally were at odds with one another which is actually quite common um, in a number of hymn books Uh, This one particularly over the doctrine of sin Uh, the first hymn uh, Is entitled love divine all loves excelling Uh, most of you would probably know it It's written by charles wesley the brother of john wesley. who was uh, At the time promoting what was called the doctrine of entire sanctification Which sometimes is referred to as christian perfectionism So it's the idea that at some point in time a christian can grow So much in their faith in the lord jesus christ that they no longer sin willingly Uh, They might do it in ignorance, but they don't do it willingly. One of the original verses in that hymn, in Love Divine, O Love's Excelling, asks God to take away our bent to sinning. In other words, to take away our very sin nature, because Charles Wesley believed that it could be taken away. Now, on the other hand, we have another hymn in our hymn book that's written by Augustus Toplady, um, who was reading the words of that hymn, and it bothered him so much that he wrote an article refuting the hymn itself. So uh, we have a controversy, if you will, between hymn writers over what is the right doctrine to believe in this matter. And so instead of teaching uh, entire sanctification, as, as Charles Wesley and John Wesley would promote, uh, Top Lady would instead say, no, there is an ongoing battle in the life of the Christian between righteousness and sin. It's a battle that will not end until we are translated from this world into the next. It's a constant progressive sanctification but not a perfect sanctification. And at the end of that article that he wrote, he also uh, attached this prayer that he called a living and dying prayer for the holiest believer in the world. And the words of that poem, of that prayer, are now known to us by the popular title of the hymn, Rock of Ages. So if you go back and both of these are, are in our hymn books, which I don't know where our hymn books are now. They're over there. So if you want to borrow one, take it out, take a look at it, see what it says. But uh, at the same time, we have kept Charles Wesley's hymn, but instead of saying, take away our bent of sinning, uh, the words in our hymn book say, take away the love of sinning. For there is a difference between the two. In other words, we're saying, as we grow in our faith, we should hate our sin more and more love the righteousness of christ more and more and be able to go to battle against it based upon what the spirit of god is doing in our lives but this is what you might call a an intra-church argument right you have some who might believe it one way you might have others that might believe it in the other uh and and yet we could still disagree and 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 even maintain fellowship with some of the people who who would be on both sides of the aisle in this but But there are other churches that have taken a different slant altogether. For instance, the Unitarian and Universalist Church, or churches, have removed, have taken the same hymn that Charles Wesley originally wrote, but they have removed every reference of Christ from the hymn. And as well as removed any reference of Trinitarian Orthodoxy. In other words, removed any reference of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit all being praised, glorified, sung to. Because keep in mind, a Unitarian believes only in one person in the godhead not a trinity you follow me so they've removed all of these things and now it no longer even attributes the hymn to charles wesley but now they call it an anonymous hymn because they've changed it so much it's really another hymn altogether it's no longer the original hymn that charles wesley wrote but entirely another hymn in fact that would correspond with another gospel because if you've never been to a unitarian universalist church you ought to know that There is no consistency of what they think the good news is. It's whatever you want it to be. That's a problem. Because in that case, it really is an entirely different gospel, a different message that's being preached. Now, I think most of us would feel uncomfortable going to one of those types of churches in which people there cannot agree that Jesus is Lord. There are some people that will not say that Jesus is Lord. They might say he's a good teacher. They might say he's a prophet. They might say he was a good man but they can't necessarily say that he is Lord. And they certainly wouldn't say that he's God. They'd have an issue with that because they don't believe that he was God. And if he's not God, then he really can't save us, can he? There are a lot of problems with that doctrine. So as a result, we really can't have fellowship with people in a Unitarian Universalist church. And this is sort of what Paul is saying in our text this morning in dealing with these antagonists who have come into the church, who have infiltrated the church and have begun to teach another gospel an entirely different message of good news that's really not good at all. Even though they continue to compare themselves to the Apostle Paul, they're not of the same mindset as the Apostle Paul. So finally, he's calling their bluff. Up until now, he has continued to tell us a little bit about their accusations that they've been making. And he's been distinguishing between their ministry and his. He's been distinguishing between their character and his. But now, he's telling us plainly the primary difference is not one of methodology. It's not one based upon temperament or character or anything of that nature, but rather one based upon substance. There is a difference between the gospel that they're preaching and the gospel that I'm preaching and the gospel they're preaching is a false gospel. In other words, he's throwing down the gauntlet now and saying, these people that you have been following in the church at Corinth are false teachers. Kick them out. He's finally got to the point where he's, he's saying this. It, it, it's... Um, he's been building up to this argument throughout this second epistle but in 1923 there's a very prominent popular book that was written by a, a man who was uh, in the uh, what founded the opc church the orthodox Presbyterian church his name is j gresham Machen, and in that book he basically was was pitting the differences between the gospel that was being preached in the conservative churches of his day with the gospel that was being preached in the liberal churches of that same day and in the end, he didn't title the book Conservatism versus Liberalism. Rather, he titled it Christianity versus Liberalism. Do you see the difference? He's saying liberalism is not just a different take upon the gospel, it's a different gospel altogether. It's a different message altogether, and therefore we can have no fellowship with people who have followed this pattern, which again is why people in denominations like ours separated ultimately in 1973. From the mother church, if you will, because she had bought into another gospel, no longer founded upon the word of God, but rather founded upon the philosophies of men. And so there was a time in which, because they would not kick out the people that were teaching these things, we exerted what you might call reverse church discipline, where we basically excommunicated the church and said, We're going to have to start another church altogether because they refuse to do what is right. And so in our text this morning, the Apostle Paul is giving us three reasons why he is finally calling their bluff. Three reasons why he's willing to engage in the foolishness of boasting to compare his ministry with theirs and to show that his ministry, in fact, is the true version of the gospel and theirs is the false version of the gospel. Again, the next couple sermons, he's going to be boasting left and right. All right, So he's going to enter fully into this competition of boasting. It's sort of like a a rap version of Christianity, if you will. Like, I'm I'm this and you're not this kind of thing. Over and over again, he's going to be doing that. But he's going to tell you in advance, it's foolishness what I'm doing, but you won't listen to me any other way. I think that's why some people have entered into rap music. just you're more likely to listen to the message then. But I would say, in in this particular case, uh, it's a rebuke to them that he has to lower himself to this type of foolishness. They will not listen plainly to what he's been saying all along so he says i'm going to give you what you've wanted and i'm going to enter into this foolishness but here, here are the three reasons he says he's willing to do this against his own better judgment he says i'm about to boast and boast a lot here are the three reasons why first because of his jealousy over christ church second because of his fear of people straying like sheep from the church and third because of his great love for the corinthians themselves so if you were to summarize it what are the three reasons he's willing to act like a fool and boast in this manner is out of jealousy fear and love and that's the three that we're going to be talking about this morning in that order as you know oftentimes in scripture jealousy is not considered a good thing but rather a bad thing something that usually leads to evil ends if we think of joseph's brothers for instance when they see how much their father loves Joseph and gives him this multicolored coat and he's wearing it, he clearly has the favor of their father. Not only do they feel jealousy against it, but they hate him for it enough to where they want to kill him because their heart is so full of jealousy over what their brother has that they do not. In that case, the jealousy is centered around the concept of someone has something you, you want and you can't have it, therefore you hate them for it. It's a bad form of jealousy, right? That's not the type of jealousy that Paul is referring to here, but rather he's referring to the type of jealousy that a husband would have over his wife. She's my wife. She's not yours. We're in covenant together. I want her to love and cherish me, not some other person, and therefore my anger is going to be aroused if for any reason that love relationship is challenged, right? It's the same. uh, God uses that same term, jealousy, in reference to Israel and then later on to the church. He's jealous over his people who have entered into a covenant of love with him. He's going to protect that loving relationship through his jealous wrath and anger. Now Paul, in this particular instance, is saying in verse 2 that he feels a divine jealousy for the church in Corinth since he has betrothed her, he says, to one husband, which is Christ, to present her as a pure virgin to him, to Christ. So, so in, in this particular instance, Paul is envisioning himself, if you will, as a father of the church in Corinth, a spiritual father, one having raised up what he thought was a virtuous daughter, a faithful daughter, a pure and holy young woman who he wants to give as a, as a proud father to her new husband. He doesn't want to hand over to this new husband something resembling damaged goods, he wants to hand over someone who is unblemished, someone who's pure, someone who, who, who loves her husband and is committed to her husband. But at this point in time, Paul's saying the church isn't looking like that, but rather it's looking like it wants to go after a different husband altogether. It's a, it's a compromised church in, in many different ways, a compromised woman, if you will. Of course, in, in other passages of Scripture, Christ Himself is seen presenting the the bride to himself as an unblemished uh, virgin, if you will, in purity and splendor and glory. But what Paul is saying here, and it it, it implies it elsewhere in other passages of Scripture, is that the way Christ presents the bride to himself is through the church, through the leadership of the church. You have leaders in the church who are servants of Christ who are helping to prepare the bride to meet her husband. On that final day on the day of judgment that that this is one of the roles of the leadership of the church is to continue to give her her beauty treatments if you will to prepare her to meet her husband the king according to second corinthians chapter 4 verse 14 um, the, the leaders of the church are seen brought alongside of the members of the church into the day of judgment and they're judged on how well they have prepared the church to meet christ you go back and you look at that text it clearly he's saying on this final day i will be right beside you and the lord will see what i have done in preparation to prepare you to meet your husband colossians 1 similarly uh, he, he says he continually proclaims christ warning everyone teaching everyone with all wisdom why that he might present everyone mature and holy before christ on that final day so he says every act of labor of love that he is engaged in as an apostle is so that on the day of judgment when finally the bride of christ is revealed in all of her glory paul is there right beside her and saying i have i have done my labor i have done my job i have prepared her and and then i will get my crown of glory if you will um in 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 the, the part in which i have played in all of this on the other hand Paul's antagonists have the opposite boast, if you will. They, they really have no concern for the people's holiness at all. That's not their desire. They can't prepare the bride to meet the bridegroom on the final day because they themselves are not ready to meet him. They have been distracting the bride. They have not been preparing her for the day of wedding. Instead, they have continued to help her become more unholy, more disordered, more disheveled, if you will. And now, as a result, the bride herself is getting cold feet she's beginning to wonder is this is this the groom for me is this the one that i thought i had believed in is is he the same person that i originally said yes to because they're presenting a different husband altogether than the one that they originally had heard from the, the lips of the apostle paul and again this is this is a problem it's for this reason that paul's anger is now becoming more manifest Because his jealousy over the church is driving him to this anger. I have a divine jealousy over the church to protect her reputation, to present her as a holy bride unto her husband, as a loving father, a spiritual father over the church. That is his desire. I'll I'll tell you, it's the same way. In any good church today, you have godly leaders who are also seeking to do the same thing. They have a divine jealousy that sometimes erupts in anger when they see false teaching coming about in the course of the church. When they see false men and women walking in the midst of the church causing havoc, their anger comes out, which surprises people at times because you know you want to always be seen as this loving person who always has a smile on his face you know if you watch some of those jesus films they always it's a very happy jesus that you see you don't see the angry jesus which is why it's not a very good jesus film to watch i mean every now and then jesus actually throws tables up in the air and and calls people whitewashed walls and, and and seeds of serpents and things of that nature he gets angry because he has a divine jealousy over his people and so do god's people but again you see in context of churches denominations whenever the men on the one side of the aisle get angry they're like oh they're, obviously they're not of god because they're angry. why are they angry because they had divine jealousy those on the other hand who don't care they're like well let's just all get along you see the problem paul's saying okay the gloves are off they're not angry because they don't care about you i'm angry because i do you see that's that's number one he shares with them the greatest difference, he has a divine jealousy over them that comes from God himself. And in addition to that jealousy, he also expresses his fear. He's afraid for them. Some of the members in the church in Corinth seem to be like sheep are going astray. They're turning away from the shepherd of their souls. And they're doing it through wolves in sheep's clothing who have come and presented themselves as shepherds who are not true shepherds. Of course, he's still using the imagery of the bride of Christ, but sort of mixing metaphors at times. Here, uh, Paul is actually hearkening back to the first bride that we see in Scripture in the Garden of Eden. He's now looking at Eve, the first woman who was given over to the Lord, if you will, but now we see a false teacher has come into the garden and has begun to tell her lies and has been webbing his webs of deceit. And she is listening to him. And is turning away from her Lord. Verse 3, Paul says, I am afraid that as the serpent deceived Eve by his coming, your thoughts will also be led astray from a sincere and pure devotion to Christ. You know, it's not often what, uh, you don't see many times where Paul expresses fear. In fact, it's very rare that you see this in Scripture. Most of the time he's, very confident in the things that he's saying but in this particular instance he's expressing great fear over the church he does the same thing in galatians for those of you who are in the small groups this last year and we're studying galatians together in the fourth chapter of that epistle paul had shared that he was afraid that he had labored over that church in vain he was afraid that everything that he had done was futile because they were all turning away from the gospel to another gospel altogether and now he's beginning to express the same concerns with some of the church here at Corinth. It's interesting. I, I, really, I can't say that I've expressed a lot of fear in my 20-some years of ministry, but I remember the times in which I have. And it's almost always in reference to a person who seemingly had been walking with God a number of years, and now for some reason or another they're not only walking away from the church, but they're walking away from any confession of Christ at all. And I've seen this, thankfully, less than a handful of times. But in those particular moments, I've met with those people and have shared with them, I'm afraid for your soul. I'm deeply afraid. Because what you're saying does not reflect anything that you said before. And in most situations in which that has occurred, the hardest part has been those that I have shared that with still did not listen to what I was saying. And, and I was thinking, you know, when the Apostle Paul tells a church, I'm afraid for you, you would think, okay, maybe I should open up my ears now. When an Apostle says, I'm afraid, you're going in the wrong direction. It's the same way in the church today. When you have leaders in the church who are, who are looking at you and saying, your confession doesn't seem right there's something wrong here your your actions are not coinciding with what you say you believe most people respond in anger and, and just leave the church a true christian you would think would have a godly fear themselves that would rush into their soul and say what why did they think this about me what's what's wrong how do i how do i address this how do i how do i fix it so again, Paul is saying, there's, at one time you, you seemed like you were on track, but, but now you've gone off the tracks altogether. He uses the language of, again, of a, of a woman who has a sincere and pure devotion to Christ, seemingly, at one time, but now has no desire for him. No desire to follow him. No desire to, to be with him, if you will. Uh, again, uh, sometimes we, when we use the word devotion, we think of it as an action if you will you know i had my morning devotion right i had my evening devotion which basically means i i read a passage of scripture maybe i prayed a prayer but you you can see that it's sort of like a checking up a, a box on a on a a, on a piece of paper right uh, i went through the motions i did my actions i have devoted myself to christ but have i the, the question is just because i read a passage of scripture where I was really thinking about other things other than God's word, and then I prayed the same rope prayer that I prayed many times before. I'm really not engaging in what I'm saying. Am I really devoting myself to Christ? There are times in which I think all of us can say we've had, or many of us can say, we've had sweet fellowship with Christ. But there are also times in which we've been very dry, and the well has been without water, if you will, and we've gone, Lord, what's wrong with me? Why do I not feel anything anymore? Why do I not love you in this way at all anymore? What's, what's going on? If someone stays in that position long, it's a dangerous place to be. So he's saying some of you have been there. You've, you've had what seemingly was a, a, a very early courtship with Christ, if you will, but now something is no longer there. You've lost your first love. And according to the book of Revelation, he said you need to go back and do the things that you did at first. Go back to that sweet time of fellowship. And if that means that you're begging for it again, go back to the Lord to know him. But when someone gets to the point where they've not only not had that time of fellowship with him and not met with him regularly, but now it got to the point where it's not even something they remember that they did because it's been so long since they've known Christ and loved Christ and the word of God has thrilled them and the, the time they spend in prayer has been truly edifying to them. Now they're just like, well, something I did like 20 years ago. It's a very dangerous place to be. And Paul's saying something has happened here. You once loved Christ, but now I don't know. I'm very afraid for you. You ought to pay attention when Paul says something like that. You ought to pay attention when the leaders of the church say something like that to you. Even what I'm doing right now as a part of the preaching of God's word is to prick your ears to see, is this something that maybe might be applied to you as well? these uh, members were willing to entertain false teachers just as eve was willing to entertain the words of satan in the garden of eden paul says verse four if someone comes and proclaims another jesus than the one we proclaimed or if you receive a different spirit from the one you received or if you accept a different gospel from the one you accepted you put up with it readily enough in other words you haven't been taken captive every thought to christ you haven't been destroying stronghold says i taught you to you haven't been fighting against satan and against his deceit but rather on the other hand you've really acted like traitors you've opened the gates and say come on in something novel this is something new i haven't heard this before this is this is kind of exciting why would someone do that uh, there, there are a number of reasons i think uh, sometimes people Uh, usually when people begin to listen to false theology oftentimes it's because they're new to the faith they're immature in their faith they haven't known enough of it i mean i can tell you when i became a christian when i was 17 within that year all of a sudden i think i i I dabbled in all sorts of cultic stuff another thing i had no idea what i was reading no idea what i was getting involved in because i was so ignorant and immature in my faith that's when oftentimes we are confronted by these things but then over time the longer someone has been a christian It's not because they don't have enough knowledge necessarily, but oftentimes because they've lost that love They've just faded away from their devotion to Christ and now they're like well Maybe this will pick me up some new teaching. I haven't heard before And as a result of a loveless marriage with Christ, they're now looking for another groom another Christ another gospel So he says I'm afraid for you Then third In addition to his jealousy and his fear over them, he also shares something of his love for them. Verses 10 and 11. He says he continues to fight for them, continues to boast in his ministry in this way. Why? He says, because I don't love you? God knows I do. It's because he loves them that he's willing to speak hard words to them. Again, uh, most people today, when they hear the words church discipline, it just sounds horrible. They think of the Inquisition. They think of witch hunts. They think of all sorts of things like that. But if you were to think of it this way, most of you are familiar with John 3.16, right? You know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only son, that he punished his only son, that he disciplined him for our sins. If you were to rephrase what Paul is saying here, for Paul so loved the church that he disciplined them in love, that he continued to cast out those who would cause them harm to their spiritual life he loved them that much that he was willing to do that would you interpret it differently he's saying that's what he's doing this this idea of church discipline is an act of love he's trying to protect them he's trying to help them to grow but only by getting rid of the the disease that's causing their sickness in, in our culture today a word that you will not hear often in churches is the word heresy Heresy used to be a very common word in fact uh, G.K. Chesterton wrote a book just called heresy after he had written a book on orthodoxy It's not a word that we throw around very often today, but basically it's a word that that signifies there's something wrong with someone's doctrine There's something wrong with their practice their life is not meshing with what we say we believe we we normally think of the word orthodoxy which means right or correct doctrine and Corresponding to that is orthopraxy right or correct doctrine actions or a life that should correspond with our beliefs then on the other hand you have heterodoxy and heresy in that case your your life and your 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 beliefs do not correspond with what's true but it's it's that that prefix at least in those words heteros is the word that he uses a number of times in this passage in the greek He keeps using the word hetero in the greek to signify something's different here and normally we think of uh uh uh, heterosexual or any other word that starts with the heterosexual, it means something of a of a different kind altogether. You know, a man and a woman are different, right? We we do know this, right? They're different. Well, there is in theology and scripture in the church, the people that are in the church should have the same theology. Not always in this particulars always, but but at least in who is Christ. What are we centered around? What is important to us? It should be Christ Jesus as Lord. But then when churches have a different gospel, a different spirit, Paul says, that's a, a huge problem within the church. First Timothy chapter four verse one, Paul says this: "In the latter days, many will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars and false teachers." This is what Paul means when he says, "A different spirit." It's not the spirit of Christ through which you're getting your doctrine but rather through the spirit of demons a different theology altogether that stands in direct contrast to what we've been told so again uh, david read earlier today from that passage in second samuel four these men are, are killing beheading a man on his bed in his home while he's asleep and they think that's good news because it's showing their strength how is this similar to what paul is facing well the 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 super apostles that are accusing paul left and right of being weak and homely and humiliating they're glorifying in their strength they're saying this is good news and now paul's saying no that needs to be severed from the church that's not good news at all you've misunderstood the gospel it's evil that's not good you need to have nothing to do with that it's a different spirit it's a different christ First John two eighteen, the apostle says, It is the last hour, and as if you've and as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, so now many Antichrist have come. It's not presenting Christ, it's presenting something the exact opposite of Christ. Really something of demons. They're not promoting Jesus, they're promoting a false version of Jesus, which is no Jesus at all. Then look at verse thirteen through fifteen. Finally he pulls back the curtain altogether and he says the corinthians you must understand who these men are that you've been listening to he calls them false apostles deceitful workmen disguising themselves as apostles of christ servants and the servants of righteousness just as satan disguised himself as an angel of light but paul says their end will correspond to their deeds in other words their judgment is coming and when it does you want to have nothing to do with them separate from them they're false teachers I think it's interesting. The last two presidents that we've had in this country, uh, they both have been accused of colluding with Russia. Have you noticed that? I'm not getting political on you, by the way. But I, th- I, I find it fascinating that w- they both have been accused of colluding with Russia, not realizing that our country has become very much like Russia over the years. We've become more socialistic year by year by year, but yet we're not fighting anybody, it's just sort of happening slowly but surely um i I tell you most of the time it satan does not attack the church from the outside you know we've never actually had a a battle with russia (laughs) we've been in war with russia for how many years now this cold war that supposed was over then it's back on again did we ever fight them no satan doesn't often attack the church from the outside because if he does it just makes the church stronger the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. It continues to get stronger through persecution. Satan's favorite way of attacking the church is through the inside of the church. You have people who come into the church and say, well, it's not exactly as you were taught before. Let me tell you a different gospel. Let me tell you about a different Christ. And then slowly but surely, you begin to buy this whole new gospel altogether. I tell you, it, it happens very easy in churches to the point where these false apostles that are tolerated these deceitful workmen are continued to be heard the church does nothing about it because they don't want to be seen as mean or mean-spirited because now they're pointing out someone is teaching something wrong it's heresy can't even use that word anymore but what happens if you don't do that if you don't approach it head on and take off the gloves and fight then what's going to happen eventually what used to be a church of christ is now paul says and later on a synagogue of satan it's no longer a church it's a satanic assembly based upon something entirely different this is what's at stake in the church of christ in this generation the next generation and on and on this is how often satan works And as a result, we need to continue to, through the jealousy over Christ's bride, through the fear of seeing the sheep scattered in every which way, and through the love of God's people, we ought to be able to stand up for the truth and and throw out those who are teaching falsely. If we don't, what we find in in the book of Revelation, I've shared this many times before with you, it, it, it envisions Jesus walking amongst the lampstands. But then any church that refuses to deal with heresy, then any church that refuses to deal with sin in its midst and does not repent of it, what does he say? I'm going to remove your lampstand altogether. To where you're no longer a church, the Spirit of God is removed from the church entirely, and it's no longer a Christian assembly, but rather a dead, heretical building that teaches anything but the gospel. And I tell you, downtown... In every city throughout the United States, there are hundreds of them. There are no longer true churches of Christ. I'm not pointing out which ones, but there are many of them. They no longer preach the gospel of Christ. How do you protect that? You stand up for the truth. You're willing to fight for the truth. And you have to practice church discipline. Again, it goes back to that. As much as you're tired of me hearing me say it, very, very important. This is what Paul's all about. But it's the same way with our own lives. If we find ourselves continuing to grow cold toward Christ, God gives to the church, not only leaders, but even your brothers and sisters, who might actually say to you, hey, how have you been recently? How is your spiritual walk with Christ? And when you don't have anything to say about it, and you're like, ah, that should bother you. Ask the Lord. A fresh falling of the spirit upon me lord don't pass me by may i know christ may i grow in my love for christ i can't continue to be cold and empty missing it all And some of you have never even had that type of relationship with christ and i encourage you come and talk to a christian in this assembly who knows christ they will be happy to share with you how to grow in your faith it's not just a bunch of facts that you've gained and said i'm now saved but now there's a life, a living relationship where you come to know and to love Jesus Christ. That's the norm in a godly church. If that's not you, come talk to one of us who can try to get you more normal. Amen? Let's pray. Father, again, we, as, we, as we hear some of these harder truths and, and even the idea of fighting and the idea of anger and jealousy and fear, all those things that we don't want to think about, uh, they're such a common part of the church of Christ as, as they continue to keep us centered on our Savior, on our Lord Jesus. Lord, help us not to stray from the shepherd of our souls. Lord, help us not to stray from His church that is the, 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 the very church that he's laid down his life for, shed his own blood for. May we continue to know you, to love you, to love the church of Christ, to grow up in our faith, Be ready to give a, a testimony, a reason for the hope that we have in our heart. We pray.